you have your Bibles, let's open up to Acts chapter 6. We're continuing our study in the book of Acts, looking at verses 1 through 7. The title of this morning's message is, Practical Service is Spiritual Service. Practical Service is Spiritual Service. And let's go ahead and stand, and we'll read this section together, and then we'll pray and get into our time in the Word. Beginning in verse 1. Acts chapter 6. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will... Give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Verse 5. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Verse 7. Then the word of the Lord spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Father, this morning we come before you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather in your presence, Lord. We thank you for this time of worship. We were inclining our hearts to you. And again, Lord, we're going to continue to do so. We ask, Lord God, that you'd remove every semblance of distraction from our lives, Lord. In in our lives, there are so many distractions, inward distractions, external uh, distractions, things good and things bad. And yet, Lord, we pray that, Lord, we know that Satan wants to distract us from hearing and receiving and responding. And so we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would incline our ears, our minds, and our hearts to you today that you'd speak to us. And Lord, that there would be a response that would take place, Lord. That we would be not only hearers of your word, but doers of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, after a four-week break, because we were in Nepal, we jumped back into the book of Acts last week, and Pastor Rory did a great job of kind of bringing us up to date in to up to chapter 6 where we are here this morning. And as we've studied the book of Acts, we've seen that the account of the early church was both amazing and powerful. God was working. The gospel was being preached, miracles were being performed, people were coming to faith in Jesus in wonderful and miraculous ways. And the church the church was characterized by joy and generosity and grace and boldness. It was alive, and it was growing. The gospel was spreading like wildfire. There was an excitement. There was much life, much activity. As we read through the book of Acts, there's something that happens within us. As we read the stories of the Holy Spirit moving, and the way people were being healed, and the miraculous ways that, that God was working in the lives of individuals, there's something within us that begins to rise up. There's something within us that, that awakens. And we read those passages, and we say things like, yes, Lord, do it again. 
Yes, Lord, we need an awakening. Yes, we want a revival. We want the things that we read of in the book of Acts to be happening today in our church, in our community, in our world. Amen? But as we read through the book of Acts, it doesn't take long for us to see that Satan isn't very happy with what's happening. Whenever God is moving, Satan is plotting. Because he doesn't want God to succeed. He doesn't want the church or the work of the church to succeed. And so he begins to try to intervene, and he begins to try to derail the works of God. Make no mistake, Satan wants to destroy the church. He wants to destroy this fellowship, this church as well. And so he employs several tactics in his overall plan to snuff it out. Two of them we've already read about in the previous chapters, and the third is found right here in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. In chapters 4 and 5, we see the first um, tool that he used. It was the, the tool of persecution, where we see the disciples being arrested for preaching about the resurrection. They're thrown in jail. They're kept in jail for several days as the leadership is trying to figure out what to do. Eventually, they come to a place where they can't find any way to punish them. And so the Sanhedrin strictly warns them not to preach or speak in the name of Jesus ever again. In chapter 5, we see the account tells us the disciples were actually strict, or, um, severely beaten and then finally released. But again, what we see is Satan's attack had no effect. It only emboldened the church all the more. Secondly, Satan tried corruption. And through the married couple Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5, Satan tried to corrupt the church through hypocrisy. And this attempt also failed only succeeding to bolster reverence for God. Now, the devil's next attack is probably his cleverest of the three. Having failed in persecuting the church and trying to bring corruption into the church, he now tries distraction. If Satan can preoccupy the apostles with social administrative work, they would neglect their God-given responsibilities to pray and to preach and thus leave the church without a defense against false doctrines. But the apostles were appropriately alert to the devil's schemes. And in verses 1 through 7, it tells us how the wisdom of God protected the early church yet again. David Guzik said this, We can say that with Acts 5 and 6, the good old days were over for the earliest Christians. They had to deal with external persecution, internal corruption, and now with disputes and possible divisions. And here's the thing. How they dealt with those things made all the difference. Charles Swindoll said that life is 10% of what happens to you and 90% of how you respond. And what we're going to see here in this surveyed section, verses 1 through 7, Acts chapter 6, is there was this, this opportunity for Satan to cause division and strife. But how the leadership responded is a great lesson for us today. Look at verse 1. It says, now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying. Now that's a key phrase. We're going to pause here just for a moment. Whenever you see phrases like that, now in those days, you want to stop and consider them. You want to take notice of them. They're there for a reason. They're there to tell us. They're like a time stamp. They're there to tell us that something has happened, that there's been a great amount of time that has transpired, perhaps from Acts chapter 2 when the, when the church was born, or perhaps even the most recent events that we just read of in chapter 5. But an amount of time has passed. And by the time we get to chapter 6, we understand that the church is about five years old by this time. So from chapter 2 where it was born to the time we get to chapter 6, 
five years have transpired, right? And so some things have changed the same, or some things have changed quite a bit, and other things have changed the same. And what we see is the early church is continuing to grow numerically. Acts chapter 2, verse 47 says the Lord was adding to the church daily. Acts chapter 5, 14, that he was increasingly adding to the number of disciples. And here in Acts chapter 6, verse 1, the Lord is multiplying the number of disciples. By the time we get here, it's estimated that some twenty-five to 30,000 Christians belong to the church in Jerusalem. Remember what they started with in Acts chapter 2, 120 praying in the upper room. And God added 3,000. God continued to add. And now we're somewhere between twenty-five to 30,000 people. Can you imagine what it would be like if Calvary Prineville had twenty-five or 30,000 people of a, of a population of a town of 11,000 people? <laughs> people coming from all over the place just to come and, and see what God is doing, to be a part of what God is doing? Growing in their faith in this place would be an incredible thing. We should be praying for that, for sure. But it says that they were, that they were multiplying. Now, the Greek word for multiplying is in the present tense, and it means that more and more people believed in Jesus. The, the church was growing and kept growing and growing and growing. Last night in our prayer meeting, we prayed for Iran, the country of Iran. I think it's like the sixth country that we've prayed for. Um, we're going through praying for the unreached people groups of the world. And we prayed this verse, Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9, that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Literally, that all should turn from sin and turn to God. And as we read through the gospel, or sorry, the, the book of Acts, the narrative of the, of the book of Acts, we begin to see that God was and God is still in the business of, of saving souls. Amen? And so notice that these believers were not merely converts. It says that they were disciples. And that's a big, big thing. It's the first time this word is ever used in the book of Acts. It's going to be used 25 more times in reference to believers uh, throughout the rest of the narrative. Now, a disciple is a follower and a learner of the Lord Jesus. It refers to those who are adherents to and not merely companions of. Their adherence to. These believers were dedicated to Jesus. They talked the talk. They walked the walk. They were not posers, per se. They were emulators of Jesus. And we're going to take a little sidebar here for a moment. Did you know that the gospel describes four different kinds of followers throughout the, the narratives of the gospels? Four different kinds of followers. The first we're very familiar with, it's the multitude or the crowd, Right? And these are individuals that they're just, they see a group of people gathering together and they're all about the, what's all the commotion about? They want to find out what it's about. So they, they begin to, to add themselves to this mob and it continues to grow and grow and grow. They're not really interested in what Jesus has to say or who he is. They're just, they just want to be a part of the group, the crowd, the mob, right? They suffer from FOMO, fear of missing out, right? And so they suffer from this. So they're just, they're part of this mob, this crowd. The second group we see are the followers. And these are those, part of that group as well, part of the multitude, but they're more interested personally on what's happening. So they push to the front of the group. They want to see with their own eyes. They want to hear with their own ears all that's being said, but they're not committed, right? They're still not committed. The third group that we find in the Gospels is the disciples. And these are people who have pushed to the front, 
They've heard the call of God upon their lives. They've answered that call. They are committed, but here's the thing. They, they struggle with the terms of the commitment. They struggle with the terms of the commitment. What did Jesus say? He said, listen, if you desire to come after me, what must you do? Deny yourself, take up your cross daily, and follow me. He also said something really hard to swallow for many of us. He said, unless you're willing, or he said, unless you hate your brother or your sister or your mother or your father, unless you love me more than these, use the word hate, which is a strong word, then you're not worthy of me. Strong words. And so these are the things that they struggled with. These are the terms of the commitment that they really struggled with. They were committed. They heard the call. They answered the call. But the terms of commitment they struggled with. And then there are his disciples. Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, it delineates between the multitude and his disciples. And these are those who have pushed to the front. They're all in, so to speak. They've heard the call, they've answered the call, they've committed themselves to it, they're, they're obedient to the word of God, they're surrendered to his will. Jesus would say to his disciples, come and follow me, and what would they do? They would drop everything and follow him because they recognized, they valued him more than everything else. Jesus was their all in all. And so we have the multitude, followers, the disciples, and his disciples. The question for us this morning is this. Which one are you? Which camp do you belong to? Second question is, which one do you think Jesus wants you to be in? And the third one is, should you want to be anything else than what Jesus wants for you? And so Jesus or we, sorry, we read in this section that the disciples are gathered together in those times when things were multiplying. And it says, now in those days when the number of disciples is multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. With, whenever there is numeric growth, there's going to be growing pains, Right? You experienced, those of you who had children, you had your first child. It was a time of growth and learning. And then you had your second child. You thought, oh, I think I can get this. I, can, I got this. I, I figured this out a little bit. I'll just transfer some of the knowledge I had before to the second child. Then you had your third. Some of the people in this church have seven children. With multitudes come growing pains. You try to figure out how to manage this group, how to, how to meet their needs, how to love on them, how to share together, life together in this group. And it takes time and energy, and you have to change some things that you used to do in order to live in harmony together, right? And that's kind of what's happening here. Whenever there's growth, there's going to be growing pains. It's going to happen. It's expected to some degree. Now, the issue that we find here is this. The writer tells us something interesting. He says there are two different groups, two different ethnic groups put together, Hebrews and Hellenists. And whenever there's two different ethnic groups put together in a very small, tight space, what ends up happening? It tends to have um, an opportunity for conflict. And that's what's happening here. The Hebrews were ethnic Jewish believers who spoke Hebrew and Aramaic. They were native to Israel. 
the Hellenists were ethnic Greek-speaking Jews who came to Israel from Greek-cultured nations, probably dispersed during the diaspora, now coming back to Israel, now coming back to Jerusalem, right? Religiously Jews, but culturally Greeks, speaking a different language, foreigners who settled in Israel. There already existed cultural and linguistic boundaries, but it goes even deeper than this. David Guzik said, to oversimplify, Hebrews tended to regard Hellenists as unspiritual compromisers with Greek culture. And Hellenists regarded Hebrews as holier-than-thou traditionalists. There was already a natural suspicion between the two groups, and Satan tried to take advantage of that standing suspicion. Whenever there are differences, even in our community, we have people who are born and raised in this area. You have people who have moved in from Portland, from California, from other places. You, no, I'm not going to say that, that place. Um, Corvallis. Moved in from Corvallis. They've come over to these other areas to be part of the community. And they have different subcultures, different ways of thinking, different ways of, of seeing things. And sometimes there can be a little bit of cultural tension that's there. And it says here that the Hellenists began to complain against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. They felt less than. They felt inferior to the Hebrews. They felt like somehow they were being slighted. The Hebrew widows were being taken care of and you were giving, we're, we're getting seconds. They get first, we get seconds. We get what's left over, pretty much. But I don't believe that this neglect was intentional in any way. In fact, the Bible tells us in the Old Testament that God promised to defend the welfare of widows, charges the nation of Israel to do such. In Exodus chapter 22, in Deuteronomy 10, in Deuteronomy 27, in Psalm 146, the nation of Israel is charged to defend widows and orphans. Under Jewish law, in fact, there were two kinds of welfare. There was a weekly distribution and there was a daily distribution. The weekly distribution was of funds given, to every, given out every Friday to residents uh, of the area. And it consisted of enough money for 14 meals. And that was given out every week on the dot on Fridays. And there was a, a daily distribution. And this was for non-residents, for foreigners, for transients. And it consisted of food and drink. And what we see here is that Christians somehow embraced both of these and pushed them together and created like a hybrid model of welfare model where they had a daily distribution and it was for the resident membership of the church. And so the neglect wasn't intentional. I believe it was unintentional. And I believe it was a result of miscommunication and mismanagement due to what God was doing in the local church. There was so much growth, so much activity taking place. Again, remember, language and cultural barriers that brought about miscommunication. If any of you guys have ever gone to a foreign country and tried to travel around and they have a different language than we speak, it causes some problems. We understood this when we were just in Nepal and we recognized we want to share the gospel with people, but we don't know Nepali. In fact, there's some, how many different languages in Nepal? 329 different languages in Nepal. One of the villages that we were in, of a community of 200 families, two separate languages. You could almost draw a line right down the middle of the village. These people speak Gurun, these people speak Nepali, and they don't speak to each other, 
right? So language and cultural barriers existed. And then there was a shortage of resources and time due to the overwhelming growth and the increase in needs causing a distraction that resulted in mismanagement. A distraction that resulted in mismanagement. And let me say this this morning. Satan loves to use unintentional wrongs to cause conflict in churches. He loves it. Most of us, I would say, are good-hearted people. We don't intend to offend anyone. We offend just because we're human beings. We step on each other's toes accidentally. We bump into each other accidentally, right? We don't intend to do it. In fact, it was funny, this week we were working out and um, my, my daughter and I are crossing the street in the morning and uh, one of the sisters of the church drives by. I don't recognize the car. I don't, I don't recognize it. So we're getting ready to cross and this, this car stops and it waves us across. And so I, I'm like, oh, great, thanks. And I smile and I walk across and then I see these hands go like this. And I'm like, okay, yeah. yeah and I walk across and then I hear them yelling out the window, sleep in this morning? And I'm like, yeah. And it was Sarah Teske. And, and I didn't recognize it was her. And then she says, oh, I could see. I said, I didn't recognize the car. And she goes, oh, I noticed because you were trying not to give me a dirty look. And I go, did it work? And she goes, no. You know, <laughs> you know, we don't intend to offend one another, but we just do. And Satan loves to use unintentional wrongs to bring conflict and division. In a church that size, 20 or 30,000, a church our size, 250, 300 people, it's inevitable that someone's needs are going to be overlooked, that someone's going to feel slighted. The Hebrews were right in, in their hearts, wanting to serve. The Hellenists were right in their facts. Both were holding up their rights. And that's exactly what Satan needed, the perfect conditions to cause division. And let me say this. Whenever someone desires to hold up their right, whenever someone desires to champion their wrong, you wronged me, instead of fighting for grace, that's the perfect environment for Satan to get his hooks in us and cause division, church splits, and destroy great works of God. And so we need to be careful about those things. Amen? Amen. And so these Hellenists, they, be, they raise a complaint. Now the word complaint means murmuring, it means grumbling. But in the Greek, this is a very strong word. It literally means a secret heart burning. <laughs> they had heartburn about this issue. And they were not happy about it, right? No Mylanta is going to fix this, right? They were seething inside, super uncomfortable. They couldn't rest, And I believe that the Holy Spirit has Luke use this word because this problem was brewing into a potential church split. With growth comes challenges. The more people, the more challenges. Proverbs 14.4 tells us that um, if, if there's no oxen, then the stalls are clean. Right? And Rory reminded me of this last week. We were um, moving some horses and um, we're getting ready to go branding and we got it opened up, right? And the trailer, horse trailer, and it had just been used to haul cows the day before. And all of their stuff was still in there. And it was soupy, 
right? And so we're in there shuffling it out, and we're like, man, this is going to be a sermon illustration. Well, here it is, right? This is it. Like, when people are around, or vice versa, when oxen are there, when cows are there, it's going to be messy. And the more people, the more mess. It's inevitable. It's going to happen. And it's okay. It's good, right? If we handle it the right way, if we, are, if we respond appropriately. But if we respond inappropriately, it can go bad really fast, right? And so here we see that uh, this thing happening. They bring this complaint. And notice verse 2. It says, Then the twelve, these are the twelve apostles, summoned the multitude, the whole company of the disciples, and said, It is not desirable, it's not right, it's not reasonable, or literally, it's impractical, they said, it's impractical that we would leave the word of God or give up preaching the word of God in order to serve tables. Now, apparently the apostles were doing jobs that other people could do um, just as well, if not better than, than themselves. And at, at the same time, when they were doing those things, they had to stop doing something else. They had to stop praying. They had to stop giving themselves to the word of God. And this type of thing creates a frustrated church. Frustration because the daily distribution of needs is being neglected. And frustration because the ministry of the word is being neglected. Now, John Stott has some great insight here. He says this. There is no hint whatever that the apostles regarded social work or literally just practical ministry as inferior to pastoral work or beneath their dignity. It was not a matter of value, but a question of calling. They had no liberty to be distracted from their own priority task, and so they made a proposal to the church. And notice what it says, verse 3, Therefore... Brethren, or so then, logical conclusion to the preceding sentence, so then, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Gives them four qualifications, and notice this. Notice the qualifications described by the apostles focus on character. They focus on character of these men. The apostles are far more concerned with the internal quality of these men than they are about their outward appearance and image. So seven men sought out to meet a very real need. By their names, as we've just read previously, we recognize they were Hellenists. They were Greek-speaking Jews. But why seven? Why seven men? It's practical. It's pragmatic. How many days of the week are there? Seven days. And so one guy would serve each of the seven days ministering to these widows. And this demonstrates practical wisdom in practical ministry since they would know the language and they would know the culture so well. We were in Nepal and we were so blessed that our guides were actually Nepalis. They spoke the language, they knew the culture and not only were they Christians but they were pastors and it was awesome because we'd ask them questions and they knew perfectly why people respond the way they do, why they dress how they do, why they do the things that they do because they grew up in that culture. They knew it so well. And so it's just wisdom to have these guys do this. And they brought these seven guys out and the apostles appointed them. Now, I want you to take notice of this phrase, seek out. The, the apostles say, seek out from among you seven men. This phrase, seek out, it means to look upon, it means to look after, but more than that, it means to observe. 
It means to inspect. It means to examine closely with your eyes. And so these were well-known men. They weren't novices. They weren't new to the church. They had been proven. They had been examined. They had been watched closely, and they had been found to be men of faith and faithful men. They weren't there just for the crack, to, to say. And what I mean by that is this. Years ago, uh, my wife and I kind of felt like God was calling us to Ireland. We still have a heart for Ireland. So if anybody wants to take a mission trip to Ireland, let me know. We'll go, right? Still have a heart for Ireland. And uh, so we went once, and then I went back a second time. And the first time we were there, we built some relationships. The second time, I had a chance to rekindle those relationships. And I was walking around with one of the pastors. I was asking how the church is going. And he was like, that's going well. And I could sense some frustration. And I said, well, what's going on? I said, well, it's... Irish men just won't come to church. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, well, yeah, they, you know, I mean, the women come, Irish women come. We have a lot of foreign men that are here working in the country. And in fact, they're mostly our leaders in our church. But the Irish men won't come to church. They only come out for the crack. And I thought, I must have misheard that. <laughs> so later on, we're talking again, and we're talking more about the church. And he tells me the story again. And and he, again, he says, yeah, the, the Irish men, they only come out for the crack. And I'm like, now I know I heard that correctly. Crack, man. And I'm starting to think like, wait, I don't want to judge, but man, I know cultures are different. Like you go, to, you go to Germany and you go to church in Germany and right after church, you don't go down to, you know, the doghouse for a burger. You go out and you have a beer after church in Germany. That's just culturally what they do. Here we go to the doghouse or we go have a cup of coffee or we do something like that, Right? Culturally, it's different. And I thought, okay, <laughs> I, I'm Irish descent, and I don't remember my dad ever telling me that my grandfather did crack, right? <laughs> but, so I'm like, okay, I'm just going to give some grace and give some space here. And then the third time it comes up, I'm like, I just got to ask. I got I to ask. It's been bothering me. I said, you're talking about these guys doing crack. Like, what's the deal? And he's like, oh, no, no, so sorry. Forgive me. Yeah, yeah, the Irish word for fun is crack. They come out only for the fun. Like they come out for bowling. And I'm like, bowling's not fun. But they're like, come out for bowling or potlucks or movie nights. They only come for the crack and then they go home. They won't come to church. I'm like, oh, okay. But these men didn't come out for the crack. These men are constant, continuous fixtures within the fellowship of believers. The qualification was, choose for yourself seven men from among you. It means they're part of the body. They were known entities. They weren't strangers. Like I said, they weren't novices. They weren't new believers. They weren't new to the church. They were common fixtures in the fellowship. They knew them. They'd been around for a while. They had a track record. Okay. Next, of good reputation, meaning they had a good testimony well testified about, good witness, they were born again, good character, men of integrity, men of purity, and it says they were full of the Holy Spirit. Now that word full means controlled. They were controlled by the Holy Spirit. J.B. Phillips thinks that this phrase means that they were spiritually minded, meaning that they were indwelt by the Spirit, they were infilled by the Spirit, they were empowered by the Spirit, and they were led by the Spirit of God. And fourthly, they were full of wisdom. The spirit and wisdom go hand in hand. Where wisdom is, the spirit is. 
Where the Spirit is, there is wisdom. Wisdom is the practical application of knowledge. These men, they knew the Scriptures, and they knew how to apply the Scriptures to life and ministry. They had spiritual street smarts. They were wise in practical matters. They knew how to practically solve and practically serve. This week, it was a great example of that. Um, earlier in the week, I texted a bunch of guys in the church that are handymen. I'm not like they're handymen, but they're handy men, right? They're handy. They work. They know how to do stuff. Um, and so I text them, text them, hey, I'm thinking about staying my fence this week. Does anybody have a, a Wagner power spray? I'm the kind of guy you work smart, not hard. I want to spray it, be done. And so some of the guys are like, no, no, don't have, don't have. And one guy's like, give me a hard time. Like, oh, sure, I see how you are. You have an hour's worth of work and you want to get a sprayer and spray it all done. And I'm like, oh, gosh, yeah, yeah, not that. And then finally one guy goes, hey, here's a ticket. Go down to Buy Mart, spend a couple bucks, buy yourself one of those white, cheap weed sprayers, fill it full of your steam, use it, and then throw it away. Wisdom, right? Wisdom. I'm like, thank you, brother. I wanted to say back, John Reed, you know nothing. But, but he doesn't want to give me a hard time. But there's the example of practical wisdom being used. And so these men, they knew the scriptures. They knew how to practically solve and practically serve. Remember, we talked about Charles Spurgeon at the very beginning, or sorry, Charles Swindoll at the very beginning of our, our time together. That 90-10 ratio he talked about, right? And here's the thing. The truth is that life... Everyday life, 90% of it is made up of the mundane, the everyday, the seemingly insignificant. We wake up, we make breakfast, we make lunch, we get our kids to school, we pick them up from school, we do laundry, we take them to practice, we bring them home from practice, we go to work, we come home from work, we you know, pay bills, we do projects, we have chores, we have responsibilities, and We have responses to all of those things. Well, these guys were filled with the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom in how to tackle life's everyday mundane issues. And here's the thing. Do you ask God to be in the mundane of your life? I'm I'm serious about asking that. Do you ask God to be in the seemingly insignificant, the everyday are you crying out to him for wisdom and for to be filled by the Holy Spirit for those mundane things? If not, then you're leaving God out of 90% of your life. This week, it was pretty awesome as well. We were branding this week and at the end of our time, um, we were kind of putting everything away and everyone's leaving and uh, one of the trucks, the trucks that we were driving after we had just cleaned that thing out that morning, right? And one of the trucks that we were driving, um, this battery died for whatever reason. It just died. And so we had it jumped. It was great. And then someone, not mentioning any names, someone turned it off. How'd that happen, Roy? Sarah, Sarah did it. <laughs> and, uh, and so while we're ready to go now, we're trying to start and it won't start. So same guys come over, same trucks, same jumper cables, hook them up to the batteries, nothing, not even a sound. We're turning the ignition, not even a sound is coming through. It won't turn over at all. So four guys working on this thing for 10, 15 minutes. We're, we're jostling cables, we're reconnecting, we're transferring to different 
batteries, back and forth, back and forth. Nothing's happened. Nothing's working. We're giving it time. We're revving engine, the other, uh, other, other, other engine of the truck. And we're waiting and waiting, and nothing's happening. And we're sitting there, and I looked out, and there's a brother at the window. I go, hey, have we prayed? He's like, no. I said, let's pray. Lord God, please let this truck start. Turn the ignition, starts right away. I kid you not, it was that fast. God is in the mundane, guys. He has to be, or he wouldn't be in our lives at all. 90% of our lives is the mundane. If we're not asking God to be in that, then we're, not, then we're leaving God out of 90% of our lives. These men were full of God's spirit, right? Controlled. That word full means controlled. Controlled by God's spirit. Controlled by God's wisdom to do ministry efficiently and effectively, to practically serve in practical ways. And oh, how we need more men and women like this in the church today. Men and women who are full of the Spirit of God. Men and women who are full of wisdom to serve our children, to serve in children's ministry and youth ministry, to be ushers and greeters, to serve up there in the projection booth, to, to serve in ministry up here on the stage. Men and women full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. And let me say this. Let me just challenge you here this morning. If you're not serving yet, you've been to the church for quite some time, and you've, you, after about four to six months, you've kind of decided, you know what, this is my church, and you're, and you're not serving, you're not even being stirred to serve, may I ask you to pray about serving in the church? Because you have wisdom and skills that the church needs that our children need, that our body needs. And let me encourage you to pray about serving in the church. If you ask anyone to serve, you go downstairs and ask them, you go up to the sound booth and you ask those people, people up here on the, on the, the stage during worship, and you ask them, hey, what's the big deal about service? They'll tell you serving is a privilege. It's an honor to serve God. And so let me encourage you to pray about getting involved. And so there's this issue that happens here in verse 1, verse 2, and 3. The disciples bring this idea up. And then in verse 4 it says, But we, the disciples say, we will give ourselves or devote ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Again, John Stott says this, The apostles discerned a deeper problem, namely that social administration, both organizing the distribution and settling the complaint was threatening to occupy all of their time and so inhibit them from the work which Christ had specifically entrusted to them, namely preaching and teaching. In other words, the apostles knew what God had called them to and they made every effort to be committed to it. Matthew Henry says this, the apostles engage, I like how he says it, to addict themselves wholly to their work as ministers. What is the great business of gospel ministers? To give themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They must be God's mouth to the people in the ministry of the word and the people's mouth to God in prayer. In order to the conviction and conversion of sinners and the edification and consolation of saints, we must not only offer up our prayers for them, but we must minister the word to them. Nor must we only minister the word to them, but we must pray for them. God's grace, and this is challenging for me, God's grace can do all without our preaching, but our preaching can do nothing without God's grace. 
Those ministers, without a doubt, are the successors of the apostles who give themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And again, I think it needs to be restated. The statement that the apostles make in no way, shape, or form is saying, hey, we are above serving in practical ways. No pastor should take this as carte blanche or take this to say, this is proof and justification for me just to preach and pray and everyone else needs to do the, the work of the ministry practically. It is not saying that in any way, shape, or form. When the church was small, The apostles could do and no doubt did do more administrative works. But as the church grew and continued to do so, they no longer had the time to meet all the needs effectively and things began to fall through the cracks. And so they needed to elicit the help of others. The difference between the ministries of the 12 apostles and the seven was not not one of value, but one of priority. The same word used when it's talking about the distribution of needs in verse 1 and serving tables in verse 2 is the same word that the, the, the apostles use to describe the way that they serve the word of God, the way they minister and preach the word of God. It's the exact same Greek word. Diakoneo is the word. It's not diakonos, meaning the designation of the office of deacon, but it's the action, it's the serving, it's the ministry. So the seven appointed servants were to minister the physical food, and the apostles were to minister the spiritual food. Both were ministering, both met vital needs. And here's the thing, and Rory has said this so often from the pulpit, and I appreciate it so much. He says this, all of us, every single Christian, every member of this body, We are all ministers. If I were to ask the question, who here is a minister? Every one of us should raise our hands because the Bible tells us that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're told they're all part of this body. Diverse, yes. Many parts, yes. Many functions, yes. But we're all part of the body of Christ with specific places and specific tasks and specific functions. We need the practical. We need the spiritual to be a strong and healthy church. Amen? little caveat. Our church has experienced incredible amount of growth in the last year and a half. That's why we had to go to two services. We were blowing out children's ministry. We had, we had classrooms meeting in the kitchen downstairs, right? We had no place to put the kids. So we went to two services to try and alleviate some of that pressure downstairs, but also to alleviate some of the pressure up here. And we specifically and purposely made this 45-minute space in between first service and second service so that we could fellowship. As the church grew, we recognized we needed to shift a little bit. We needed to make a change. We don't want to lose the intimacy, so what can we do? We've got to try to figure out a way we can do both. Try to re- maintain or retain that intimacy by having this fellowship and yet still try to alleviate some of the pressure downstairs by having two services. That's one of the ways that we've tried to, to facilitate ministry in the midst of growth. And so we've... we've put in new systems. We've tried to raise up servants and tried to train uh, and disciple uh, deacons and elders and tried to put in new procedures in place so that we can facilitate ministry as the church continues to grow. That's what's happening here. We recognize there's a need. The old ways don't quite meet the need, so we have to shift a little bit, right? Now, undoubtedly, 
Every single one of us would love the church to be 25 to 30,000 people and to maintain the intimacy that we have now. We would love it, but it's impossible. And so we have to shift home groups, core groups, men's and women's fellowships, youth groups, all these different things to try and meet the need so that those needs are being met in 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 an effective and efficient way. Does that make sense? So the practical and the spiritual, they go hand in hand, and they're vital and they're important. Notice verse 5, and this is what I love. And so the disciples bring this idea forward, and it says in verse 5, and the saying pleased the whole multitude. The saying pleased the whole multitude. Again, this is not a small group of people, just a little committee that was convened to try and figure out how to handle this issue. They bring the whole church together and go, hey, here's the situation. What should we do? This is our suggestion. What do you think? And it says, man, that's a great idea. It pleased the whole multitude. In Judges chapter 5, verse 2, the song of Deborah, after the defeat of Sisera, she writes, when the leaders lead in Israel, and when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. I love that. So what's happening right here. Leaders leading the people willingly offering themselves, being open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and blessing comes forth. Blessing comes forth. And that's what happens when the word of wisdom is at work and the people are willing to yield to the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is a wonderful way to solve the problem, isn't it? They didn't throw the complainers out. They didn't shun those unhappy people. They didn't divide into two congregations over this. They didn't form a committee and discuss the issue to death. (laughs) They literally said, hey, let's raise some people up to serve. And they delegated responsibility and they brought more people to the table in order uh, to solve the problem. They brought more people into the work of the ministry. Verse 5 says they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Procurus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Now, the names of the seven men here are interesting. We know they're Hellenistic Jews, and again, they chose these Hellenists to meet a very practical need. They knew the language. They knew the culture well. Stephen is the first person that's mentioned here. Stephen is our main character in the rest of this chapter, beginning in verse 8 through the end of chapter 7. He's the main character. He's a man full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. Philip is mentioned next. And this is not Philip the Apostle, but rather Philip the Evangelist of Acts chapter 21, verse 8. He's the main character of Acts chapter 8. I will read about here shortly. And then the third person is Procurus. Procurus. Um, church tradition tells us a little bit about him. We don't hear about him anymore in the Bible, but church tradition tells us he became the assistant of the Apostle John, eventually became the pastor of the church in Nicodema, and then he would be martyred for his faith in the city of Antioch. The other guys, we don't know anything about other than what the Bible says. What does the Bible say? The Bible tells us they were men that had a good testimony within the church that a good testimony within the local church. These were good men, men of good standing. And that's what being a servant is all about. It's people serving not for personal recognition, but to please God and to glorify God by blessing God's redeemed people. It's people not looking for a position or a title or somehow to, to start climbing the ladder, so to speak, within the church, but serving as needs arrive, looking for opportunities as the Lord would present them. 
as people not looking for influence, but who are influenced and led by the Holy Spirit. What's so interesting about these seven men is that they didn't have to have a title. They didn't have to have an official position in order to serve the body. They were already doing it. And they had good standing because of it. Now, because God is doing something, they're now officially brought forward and appointed to practically serve a certain group of people. But what do we know about them? They were among the people. They had a good reputation. They were full of the Holy Spirit. And they were full of wisdom. This week, as I was preparing for today, reading through that, man, I was just frozen many times, arrested, if I could use that phrase, many times, thinking about the qualifications and then asking myself, do I fit those qualifications? Does that describe my life? A man of good reputation within the company of believers, a man full of faith, a man full of wisdom. I'm praying, Lord, Lord, make me a man like this, not because I want bragging rights, not because I want to be recognized, but because I want to serve him well and serve God's people well. Amen? And so I've been praying all week long, Lord, make me a man of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And it says in verse 6, they set the, these men before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. And this is significant. The handbook of the, of the Acts of the Apostles says this, the laying on of hands was a gesture taken over by the Christian community from the Jewish community. The Christians adopted this. It was something that was normal in their culture, and they adopted it into their church culture. It symbolized not only the giving of a responsibility, but what is more important, and here's the thing, the imparting of strength and of the community's blessing. In other words, they call them forward, they lay hands on them, they say, look, we see what God is doing in your life. We see that God is already raising you up. We see that God has already given you a heart for this ministry. And so we recognize it. God is doing it. We just affirm it. And we're putting our hands upon you saying, now we just want to release you to ministry and you have our blessing to serve. That's what they're doing. But notice the order here. Notice the apostles first did what? They prayed. They prayed and then they laid hands on them. And this is a pattern all throughout the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13 verse 3 says, Then having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. This order is really, really important. What that means is they stopped and they said, Okay, Lord, these are the guys that have been brought forward. Are these your guys, Lord? Not our guys. Are these your guys? This is not a good idea. We want this to be a God idea. Are these your guys? Are you raising these guys up to specifically serve in this area? And they waited upon the Lord until it was affirmed and confirmed. Yes, these are my guys. Then they laid hands on them. Then they released them. Then they blessed them to serve. But there was a process. And it's important because the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 22, to not be hasty to lay hands on anyone to be careful not to put your hands on people too hastily. It's a warning and it guards us from laying hands on the wrong people. We need to be seeking God first. Not because someone's incredibly talented, not because they're good looking, not because they're, they're funny, not because they have a way with kids, not because whatever it may be, but because God is saying, this is my man. 
and he's already he or she has already proven to already have that heart, already be serving that in that area. And God's saying, "Look what I'm doing in this person's life. I want you to recognize it. I want you to affirm it, and I'll release them to ministry." Does it make sense? And notice the result. Then it says in verse seven, the word of God spread, or literally kept spreading. Because of these 12, the apostles were freed up to proclaim God's word. And God's word was freed up to spread through Jerusalem like wildfire. It says, Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many priests were obedient to the faith. The word spread and multiplied are in imperfect tense, telling us that the spreading of the word and the growing of the church continued. And it says, A great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I love that. Not just a few priests, a great many. I'm not sure you guys caught that. Now, why is that important? Remember, just a a little while later, what were these priests doing? They were with the multitudes crying out, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And now they're coming into saving faith, giving their hearts and lives to the name or to the person of Jesus Christ through and because of the person and finished work of Jesus at the cross. Radical, amazing. The Bible tells us, or sorry, history tells us that um, during this period of time, there were around 8,000 Jewish priests serving at the temple there in Jerusalem. 8,000. And notice what it says, and a great many, a great many were converted to Christ. Men who once opposed Jesus are now being saved. And that tells us that God can and will save even the most unlikely souls. The other night we were at dinner with some friends and we we're sitting around and we we're talking about our testimonies. We we're talking about how we got um, saved and how we met our wives and how God brought all that about. And we were just amazed that God saves souls and saves even the most unlikely people like me. I mean, if you were to ask anyone that I went to high school with, can you ever imagine Chris Cross being a pastor? They would say, heck no. There's no way. Prison, yes. Dead, maybe. But pastor, no way. God can and will save even the most unlikely souls. Here, a great many priests were saved. It reminds me of Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I'm going to have the worship team start making their way forward as we close here. And so what we've seen is that there, Satan has used three different tactics in his overall strategy to destroy the church. And every single one of them have failed. He used persecution, he used corruption, and he used distraction. And if Satan had been successful in any of these attempts, the early church would have been annihilated in its infancy. But the apostles were undaunted, and they were keen-eyed to see the schemes of the enemy. And as I was sitting there thinking about how we're going to close this morning, I was just thinking, Lord, how we need, Father, how we need this spiritual discernment in our lives how I need that in my life, the spiritual discernment to recognize when the Holy Spirit is moving and when the evil one is moving and to be able to separate the two and to be able to clearly see this is of the Lord, this is of the devil and we're not going to have anything to do with it. 
in the church to recognize that when there's, dis, when there's uh, disruption, when there's division, when there's discord, to, to call it for what it is, that's of Satan. God doesn't do stuff like that. Call it what it is and say, we're not going to give any attention or any, any heart or any effort to think those type of things. We're just going to seek the Lord. We're going to extend grace. We're going to extend mercy. We're going to move forward in love. Amen? And also, we need their keen eyes. And guys, I was thinking this morning how we need to guard our hearts and minds against the schemes of the evil one who desire us to tear up our relationships, tear up our marriages, tear up our homes, our families, to tear up our church. We need their keen eyes. And the best way to guard our hearts and guard our minds is in the Word of God and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Amen? Let's pray. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your Word. We thank you for the example that we see in Scripture. Lord, how we recognize that we're in a spiritual battle each and every day and Satan is working overtime to try and disrupt what you're trying to accomplish in our lives, in our homes, in our churches. And Father, we pray, would you give us discernment and eyes to see and wisdom, Lord, to recognize what is of you and what is not. What is of the wicked one? And Lord, to be able to deny those things and seek your face and turn away from those and not give any time or attention or effort to any of those things that are not of you, Lord. Lord, we need to be men and women. We want and desire to be men and women, Lord, of good reputations, full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. Help us, Lord God, to see and to know and to practically work in ways that will bring you glory and bring, bring a blessing to your people, we pray. Encourage us, Lord. Stir us. And Lord, we would even ask this morning that you would expand our ability, Lord, to have more of your spirit in our lives. Someone once said that we have as much of the spirit as we want. Now, there's no limit. As much of the Son of God in our lives than we want, there is no limit. And Lord, we pray, would you expand our ability, Lord, to comprehend, expand our ability to have more of Jesus in our lives, to contain more of Jesus in our lives, more of the Holy Spirit in us, Lord, so that we might be effectual, so that we might be used in greater ways in more efficient ways, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.